One of the funny things about preparing sermons week in and week out is that the Lord always seems to be working on on me as I I work on sermons. Uh, As I'm studying the Bible and kind of crafting the sermon, I'll I'll read something in the text and think, you know, I should probably kind of build out, work on some application on, on that point. And inevitably, the Lord will make it plain that there is some application needed in my heart on that subject. And so it, it happened this week, too. Uh, so one of the things that we're going to come upon shortly in this text that we're going to read together is the subject of the fear of man. And, and wouldn't you know it, the Lord graciously reminded me that I still struggle with the fear of man. So I spent uh, Saturday morning at a swim meet, just watching uh, my kids swim, and it was fun. Uh, but uh, kind of in the rush to get out the door, I forgot to put on sunblock. And so when I got home, I looked in the mirror and I saw this line across my forehead. And, and I thought, you're going to look like such a goofball when you stand up to preach on Sunday morning. And then it hit me. And, and so you fear man. You, you care what other people think about you. And you're, you're, you're working through that. And, um, and that came home to me. And then... Uh, the next thing that came home to me was, I'm so glad that I wear long pants and stand in front of a pulpit when I preach because my knees are the worst of all. Um, and then what, what is that I'm going on with there? I'm, you, know, you care about what other people think of you. You, you fear man in, in that way. And you know, I, I've got a problem with fear of man. We all do in, in different ways. And sometimes our, our struggles can seem minor and, and you know what? They, they sometimes are. Uh, still, even what these minor struggles reveal is that we have room for growth as Jesus' disciples. And isn't it so kind of the Lord to keep shining a light on my heart in bringing these issues up in the passages that I'm going to preach on? And as strange as it may sound, I pray that He is doing the same for you as we are working through these passages. That's just like Him. Never letting us escape an opportunity to be confronted by our own sins and struggles, and never letting us forget His saving love. And as we study Luke chapter 12, verse 1, through chapter 13, verse 9, I pray that you'll be encouraged to think more deeply about your discipleship and about what it means to follow Jesus. So if you haven't done so already, let me encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 12. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can find Luke 12 beginning on page 871. And while you're turning there, let me just remind us of the goal of the Gospel of Luke, why he's writing, and where we are in our study of this Gospel. The Gospel of Luke is an orderly, a a faithful, and an accurate account of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It was written shortly after the events that it recounts, and it's based upon the eyewitness testimony, the the testimony of those who actually saw Jesus and lived with Him and interacted with Him. The Gospel of Luke is arranged in a rough chronological order. Uh, From time to time, Luke does arrange the material thematically. Uh, For example, sometimes Luke will group similar themes in Jesus' teaching together in, in the same section. We'll see some of that today, Lord willing. The purpose of Luke's gospel is to announce that the good news, that the Savior of the world has come, that the the second Adam, that the promised offspring of Abraham, the promised King and Son of David, has come 
2, in the words of Luke chapter 1, verses 77 and 78, give knowledge of salvation to His people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God. Today we are continuing our study of Jesus teaching on the road to Jerusalem. Beginning in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, Jesus, He got on this road to go to Jerusalem. And when we get to Luke chapter 19, verse 44, should the Lord Jesus tarry, we'll finally see Jesus arrive in Jerusalem. Before Jesus got on this road, His birth, His mighty works, His teaching, all demonstrated that He is the promised Messiah who was sent by the Father for the salvation of sinners. And on this road, Jesus is teaching His disciples about what life in the kingdom entails. Jesus is teaching His disciples about what it means to follow Him. From last week, from Luke 11, we learned that life in the kingdom entails prayer. It, it means recognizing that Jesus is the King of the kingdom and turning away from hypocrisy and sin. And Luke 12 picks up where Luke 11 left off with Jesus warning His disciples about hypocrisy and greed. But this warning is connect, connected to a more fundamental reality. Whether or not we love and trust God, our Father in Heaven. Or to put it in the words of Luke 12, whether or not we fear God above men and the things of this earth. In short, disciples are fearless and fearful. So if you're taking notes this morning, that's the first of our four points this morning in this sermon. Disciples are fearless and fearful. And as we consider this, let's read Luke chapter 12, verses 1 to 12. Luke chapter 12, verses 1 to 12. In the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling on one another, he began to say to his disciples first, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. You are of more value than many sparrows. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man, will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. 
Well, in these verses, Luke informs us that thousands of people have begun to gather to Jesus. You see that in verse 1. And this reality prompts Jesus. It's this, what's going on around him, prompts Jesus to turn to his disciples, to focus in on teaching them. Now, in, in the larger passage that we're going to be studying together today, like 12, chapter, uh, chapter 12, verse 1, through chapter 13, verse 9, Jesus is actually going to kind of bounce back and forth between speaking to his disciples directly and kind of addressing the crowd generally. But right now, what he is doing is he is speaking to his disciples. He's teaching them. And in particular, he's teaching them to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Verse 2. In chapter 11, Jesus pronounced woes of judgment upon the Pharisees and the teachers of the law for their loveless and hypocritical religion. And let's just note that if Jesus warned his disciples about the possibility of being infected by such teachers and teaching, then we can be infected by it too. Let's not think of ourselves more highly than we ought. Hypocrisy, as you know, is, is appearing to be one thing on the surface while being another in our hearts. Do you know how we fight hypocrisy? Do you know how to kind of put it to death? It's really simple. And it is really hard. We put hypocrisy to death by confessing our sins to God and to one another. We put hypocrisy to death by not fearing what others will say and think or do but by fearing God and seeking His forgiveness. Fighting hypocrisy requires a, a fearlessness concerning what others think and a fearfulness concerning what God thinks. Jesus, you'll notice there in verse 2, wants His disciples to be certain that one day everything, everything will be revealed. He communicates to His disciples that this reality that there is uh, coming a day in which all things will be disclosed ought to lead them to fear God above men. Verse 5. Amazingly, Jesus tells them not to fear. Or perhaps I should say that Jesus tells them to fear the right person. He tells them to fear God rather than man because God can cast the soul into hell. Hell, the eternal, the place of eternal self-conscious torment. Whereas man can only kill the body. God is worthy of their fear, of, of our fear, of our faith, because He loves us. You see that in verse 7. Let's take in the implications of what Jesus is saying here. God knows and remembers every sparrow. He knows the number of hairs on your head. He even knows the number of hairs that used to be on your head. You see what Jesus is doing here? He is working from the lesser to the greater. If God remembers, knows, and treasures the, the lower creation, then how much more does He love and care for those who He calls by name? The Father loves His children, those who are disciples of Jesus. This is the why of why we ought to fear God. He is loving and benevolent kind see fear in the Bible is, is a way of expressing our awe and wonder fear is a way of expressing our faith in God our confidence that he is our shield and our salvation 
He has told us in the Psalms that He is the stronghold and fortress of His people. And that is because He has committed Himself, He's committed Himself to them in covenant love. Because Jesus' disciples are loved by God, they ought to acknowledge Jesus and identify Him as their Savior and King, even when they stand before synagogues and rulers and authorities. You see that there in verse 8. Those who follow Jesus ought to confess Him, not deny Him. There is even hope for those who've spoken a word against the Son of Man. Verse 10 tells us that they may be forgiven. Friend, have you ever spoken against Jesus? If you have, if you've ever mocked or attempted to belittle Jesus, then you need to know that there is forgiveness available for your sin. Don't, don't allow any kind of fear concerning your, your past obstinacy prevent you from coming to properly fear and love the Lord Jesus. But, but those who blaspheme the Holy Spirit, by that I think Jesus means, by those who deliberately and persistently reject the work of God in Christ as testified by the mighty signs and wonders of the Spirit in His life and ministry, those who reject that work consistently, persistently, unto the end of their lives, they will not be forgiven. This is bad news for those who suppress the preaching of the Gospel in the book of Acts and those who suppress the preaching of the Gospel today. This is, is concerning news for those who oppose Jesus in unrelenting impenitence and unbelief. Jesus' disciples ought to acknowledge Him and proclaim the greatness of His name before the men who hold their earthly lives in their hands. Jesus' disciples can be certain that when those trials come, they will have the help of the Holy Spirit in that very hour. Verse 12. That very hour did come for Jesus' disciples. We see it in the book of Acts. And what is most remarkable to think about is just how faithful Jesus was to this promise here in verse 12. That the Spirit would speak through them. If you read the, the speeches of the apostles of the disciples in the book of Acts, when they stand before the authorities who are threatening to kill them, they are remarkable words of faith. Most of them, in fact all but one of Jesus' apostles, lost their lives. But they also found them too. Because of their faith in Jesus, they found that they had life in Christ's eternal kingdom. Jesus' words to His disciples were honest. They were true. After Jesus' resurrection, the apostles were fearless in the face of danger. And that is because they feared God with their whole hearts. Well, having considered how disciples of Jesus are to be fearless before men, but fearful toward God. Let's turn and consider our second point. Disciples treasure God and are treasured by God. Disciples treasure God and are treasured by God. Here in Luke chapter 12, verses 13 through 34, Jesus is, is working out additional implications of what He has already said. And as we begin to consider this truth, the disciples treasure God and are treasured by God, let's read verses 13 to 34. Luke 12, verses 13 to 34. Someone in the crowd said to Him, Teacher, 
Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn. And yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet, I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will He clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek His kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Jesus, teaching on the road to Jerusalem in these verses, is prompted by someone in the crowd calling out to him, asking him to decide a dispute over an inheritance. You see that in verse 13. Jesus, he takes this opportunity to offer another warning, namely that everyone ought to be on guard against all covetousness. Verse 15. This idea of covetousness is closely linked to greed, the very thing which Jesus confronted the religious leaders with in chapter 11. Jesus' words remind me of uh, Tolstoy's famous short story, How Much Land Does a Man Need? Uh, The main character in Tolstoy's story is poem. He's a, a peasant who desires a better life. And at one point, he even declares that if he had plenty of land, he wouldn't even fear the devil himself. And who do you think 
Tolstoy had hiding and listening into such a declaration. Well, the devil, and as you know, the devil enjoys a good challenge. Poem, he uh, is eventually able to purchase some land, but it's not enough. So he, he moves to a large plot of land where he's able to grow even more crops and bring in even more wealth. But the challenge for Poem is that the land is rented. Finally, Poem, he hears about the Bashkir people, and they're willing to sell him as much land as he can walk around in a day. The only condition is, is that he must return to the same spot that he started on, what one he began at, or else he would lose the money and the land. So Poem, he agrees, and he, he begins his journey. He is ambitious or greedy, as Tolstoy has intimated throughout the story, and he begins marking off his land. And as the day wears on, and as the sun begins to set, he realizes he's not going to make it back to his starting place. So as soon as he begins to grow weary, he hears the voices of those who are waiting for him. And he makes one last kind of strenuous effort to reach his starting point. And Poem, he reaches his starting point and he falls down, dead. His greed had killed him. And as Tolstoy closes his story, he answers the question that's found in the title. How much land does a man need? He writes this, his servant, this is Poem's servant, his servant picked up the spade and dug a grave long enough for Poem to lie in and buried him in it. Six feet from his head to his heels was all he needed. Here in Luke 12, Jesus is warning his disciples against covetousness and greed. Having material possessions in and of themselves are not sinful or wrong. Uh, God is pleased to bless many people through material blessings. The problem is when they become the treasure of our hearts and not God. Jesus tells us that this is foolishness because one's life does not exist in the abundance of his possessions. Verse 15. In the end, God will call everyone to give an account of who and what they treasure. Verse 20. The question for that man, for, for the crowd, and for us, for us is whether or not we treasure God above all things. Verse 21. What we spend our time thinking and worrying about reveals what we treasure, what we are seeking. Jesus even calls us to kind of diagnose our own hearts, asking us to consider what are we anxious about? Verse 22. And to consider whether or not we can really do anything about it. Verse 26. Jesus calls us to once again remember that we are treasured by God. So much so that He is pleased to give us everything we need. Verse 28. Including His kingdom. Verse 32. In view of God's generosity toward us. We are called to be generous toward Him, even making Him the treasure of our hearts. Verse 34. God, you see, is to be our chief treasure. Disciples treasure God because they are treasured by God. Does your life reveal that God is your treasure? How might our lives reveal that? Jesus, I think he gives us some practical counsel here. 
First he says there in verse 22, do not be anxious. Thanks, Jesus. Like, stop worrying about the things you're worried about. That's really helpful, right? Just stop it. That's hard. Being anxious is challenging for us to come over. It's actually hard to to stop being anxious. Life is about more than food and clothing, Jesus said. That's an enormous hurdle for someone who is living on the edge. Being anxious goes beyond simply being concerned about the basic necessities of life. Being anxious about is, is, is being something of kind of a functional atheist. Blocking out the possibility that God can actually help to provide you with your basic needs. God can provide. Jesus also gives the practical advice for those who do have an abundance of resources. We see that in verse 33. If you have an abundance of resources, and many of us here this morning do, then we ought to think about giving a significant portion of that abundance away. Giving it away to the work of the gospel shows love for God, the honor of His name. Giving it away to those in the household of God, in the church, who are in need shows love for God's people, which is a way of expressing your love for God. We must not think about our material resources in the same way our unbelieving friends and family do. They, they view material resources as a source of safety and security. Even as a source of satisfaction, right? You, this guy here, right? I've got enough. I just relax. I eat, drink, and, and be merry. He's both resting in his resources and he's using them to satisfy himself rather than satisfy, find satisfaction in God. Finding safety and security and satisfaction are resources. Our source of safety, our source of security, our only source of satisfaction is God Himself. Material blessings are from His hands. All that we have is His. And we are but stewards over His wealth. What do members, what do the members of your church family need? What do your brothers and sisters in Christ need? If you have an abundance, you may have what they need. Yes, we must be wise and faithful stewards, but we must be careful not to feed our our fleshly cravings for more comfort, more ease, more possessions. All of those things which the world is calling us to give ourselves to. It is hard not to give ourselves to more comfort, more ease, more possessions. I don't know about you, but I love comfort. It's good to be comfortable. It's good to have air conditioning. It's good to have heat in the winter. What Jesus is calling for in verses 13 to 34 is that we turn our hearts and minds away from building our kingdom to seeking God's kingdom. Our vision has to be outward, not inward. We've got to be busy looking for how we can serve Him and His people and honor His name. This is how we reveal that we treasure Him. The one who has called us His treasured possession. Deuteronomy chapter 7 verse 6. The blessing of being treasured by God, of being His beloved children, ought to encourage two things within us. One, a longing to see our Savior face to face. And two, an ambition 
to work for His glory until He comes again. This is actually Jesus' encouragement to His disciples in Luke chapter 12, verses 35 to 59. So here we're considering our third point. Disciples watch and work. Disciples watch and work. And as we begin to think about what it means for disciples to watch and work, let's read Luke chapter 12, verses 35 to 59. Verse 35. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and wise manager? whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and an hour that he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will reserve a light beating Everyone to whom much was given of him, much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. I came to cast fire on the earth. And would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with. And how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. He also said to the crowds, when you see a a cloud rising in the west, you say at once a shower is coming, and so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say... There will be scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and the sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and the officer put you in prison. I tell you, You will never get out until you have paid the very last penny. If we're not careful, we may be inclined to think that verse 35 
is kind of inappropriately smashed into Jesus' call to treasure God above all else in verse 34. In reality, Jesus understands the urgency of the command in verse 34. When should we make God our treasure? When should He reign as the Lord and Master of our hearts? Verse 35 and the verses that follow answer by saying, Now, today, and always. Interestingly enough, Jesus' parable in verses 35 to 40 are given for the purpose of reminding us that the Son of Man is coming at an hour which you do not expect. And therefore we must be ready. Verse 40. This is why disciples watch. Jesus seems to have in mind His second coming here. But in that sense, His second coming is also much like His first. No one was really expecting Jesus to step onto the scene as He did. Jesus told us in chapter 11 that this generation, is His present audience, would give an account for how they received Him. And the truth is, they didn't receive Him. They rejected Him. Because they were not expecting Him. No one was ready for His first coming, but now that He has come and told us that we must be ready for His second coming, well then, we really must be ready. For He may come, as He says here, at any time. In faith, we must watch for His coming. And while we watch, we must also work. This point is driven home through Peter's question there in verse 40. And Jesus' parable of the faithful and wise manager. If you know that Jesus has come and that He is coming again, then you must be a faithful servant by remaining ready and keeping others ready for His return. Everyone who has been entrusted with the knowledge of Jesus' return is responsible to use that knowledge wisely and well. In fact, at some level, it seems that we, the New Testament people of God, will be held to an account for how we handle this knowledge of Jesus' return. But what does this mean? What does it mean to work while we watch and wait for Jesus' return? Well, at a most basic level, it means to be faithful in the things that we have been entrusted with. I also think there's a reason that Jesus uses the imagery of food in His parable. As believers, we possess the bread of life when we believe on Jesus in faith. Jesus is the only one who satisfies the hungry soul. Part of being found faithful is being found as one who helps others to come to the bread of life, come to Jesus in faith. It's also not enough that we are busy. There is a certain character which is required in our faithful work. There's this old saying like, Jesus is coming back, look busy. Actually, we should be busy. And there's actually a character in which Jesus describes how we're to be busy working for Him here. You'll notice there, Jesus rules out harsh service in verse 46. Harsh, uncaring service is unacceptable to Jesus. He will punish those who harshly lord their authority over others. What is required of Jesus' disciple is humility in, in their service and work. Attention to the needs of those under their care. We must watch with hearts that long for Jesus appearing. And we must work with hearts that humbly remember 
that we are servants in the master's house. It's not our house. We're servants in his house. And Jesus, he's a masterful teacher. So now that he's got everyone's attention focused on the future, in verse 49, he reminds them that something profound is happening in the present. Jesus came to ignite a fire. His first coming would bring a kind of judgment upon the present generation for their rejection of Him. But not before judgment fell upon Him. You see, in verse 50, Jesus refers to His coming death as a baptism. Jesus will be immersed. He will be baptized in the judgment and wrath of God. God's wrath will be poured out upon Jesus as He hangs upon the cross. And the coming judgment that Jesus is to undergo will be so horrific that He wishes that it were already past. And yet, it is still before Him. See, Jesus knows that His judgment is coming and how people respond to His death on the cross will create a division. If you embrace Jesus and identify with Him in faith, then that fire in your soul will almost certainly bring strife into your life. As one scholar observed, the one who decides for Jesus must be prepared for the enmity even of those most closely related to Him. This has happened throughout the history of the church. Early records of church history contain pastoral advice for those known, uh, from those known as the Apostolic Fathers with how to actually handle family division. So these apostolic fathers wrote, this is how you kind of interact with family who disregard you and disown you. This is how you kind of reveal Christ to them. This kind of division, family division, is especially acute when those from Muslim backgrounds come to faith in Jesus Christ. Many of these brothers and sisters even face the threat of death. Perhaps you are the only one in your family or maybe one of the few believers in your family. And if this is so, I suspect that you have faced hardship even uh, if it has not been sought. This kind of difficulty ought to encourage us to continue to work for the good news of Jesus to come and rest in the hearts of our families. It ought to encourage us to long for the day of Christ's return and His reign in peace. Jesus wanted His generation to understand and recognize what is happening right before their very eyes. He chides them for being able to discern what the weather brings, but not being able to discern what His presence brings. Verse 56. His presence, you see, brings the opportunity to recognize that Messiah has come and to settle their account with God before the judgment comes. That's what verse 58 is about. What does this mean? It means there is an opportunity to recognize that God's Messiah has come. And what does this mean for us? It means the same thing. We need to recognize that God's Messiah has come and we ought to settle our accounts with God. We ought to be reconciled to God and to do so before God's Messiah, before Jesus comes again to judge the living and the dead. Jesus, He has told us of the necessity of being reconciled to God. But how do we go about pursuing that reconciliation 
with God? Well, Jesus, he answers that question in chapter 13, verses 1 to 9. This is our fourth and final point. Disciples pursue reconciliation and repentance. Disciples pursue reconciliation and repentance. We, we might even say that disciples pursue reconciliation through repentance. Read, read Luke chapter 13, verses 1 to 9. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you all likewise, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree and planted it in his vineyard. And he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree. And I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year until I dig around it and put on manure then if it should bear fruit next year well and good but if not you can cut it down see these verses in chapter 13 are linked to those which concluded chapter 12 verse 1 reveals that Jesus audience did not understand that he was speaking of them and their needs to be reconciled to God they wondered to themselves if what had happened to the Galileans was an act of God judging those Galileans and so they asked Jesus about it and Jesus' reply in verses 2 through 5 effectively communicates that they have missed the point of everything he has just said. While they have been pondering the prospect of others facing God's judgment, they should have been considering the fact that they are sinners too. And all sinners will perish under God's judgment unless they repent. Verse 5. Jesus even brings this home, literally. By reminding them that the catastrophes that happened in Galilee and in Jerusalem, the Tower of Siloam was a defensive tower in Jerusalem. Likely the place that many of these thousands of people were from. Men died in Galilee and they died in Jerusalem. They died in your hometown. Everyone, everywhere is a sinner and is in danger of God's judgment. Your life might be required of you at any moment. We learn that in the parable of the rich fool. And our second point, we learn it here again. Are you prepared to face the judge? That's what we thought about the end of verse, uh, uh, our third point. Are you prepared to face the judge? Have you been reconciled to God? Have you settled with Him? You see, faith-filled repentance toward God is how we're reconciled to God. It is how we escape the coming judgment that was portrayed in verses 58 and 59 of chapter 12. And this parable in verses 6 through 9 illuminates the patient mercy of God. Year after year, the owner of the vineyard has come looking for fruit on this tree, the fruit of repentance and faith, but he has found none. God has been watching and waiting for fruit to emerge, but he has found this tree barren. 
He is ready to judge the tree. He's ready to cut it down. But his servant appeals to him, asking for one more year. And he will do everything that he can to prepare the tree for fruitfulness. He's going he's to dig around it, kind of expose the, the roots. He's going to put manure on it to kind of fertilize it, to help it as much as he possibly can. He's being patient. He's laboring. All that he can do. He will do everything that he can. And then, if after another year it does not bear fruit, then it will be cut down. What must that tree do to escape the acts of judgment? It must produce fruit. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. The year of God's patience will come to an end. The era, the, the time that God in His sovereign plan and providence has allotted to the preaching of the good news of Jesus Christ will one day come to an end. He is being patient. Simply because He is being patient now does not mean that He will be patient forever. In fact, in Acts chapter 17, verse 31, we learn that God has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. And of this, of the fact that God has fixed a day that we do not know, of this, that He has fixed a day that He will judge the world in righteousness, He has given us this assurance that it's coming, that it will happen by raising Jesus from the dead. See, Jesus, God has told us in time that all of this is coming. He's proven it to us. He's given us assurance of this by raising Jesus from the dead. And do you know what comes before that declaration of the coming judgment in the book of Acts? An invitation to repent. Paul says the times of ignorance that God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Children, youth, young adults. Uh, it, it may be that friends in your lives someday, perhaps even now, uh, encourage you to, to live life, to have fun, uh, to do what you want regardless of the consequences. They may suggest, you know, you're only young once. That today doesn't matter. You can kind of grow up later. So, so do what you want today. You know, there are a few, few problems with that kind of thinking. One problem is that in the eyes of God, every day matters. Every day is the day to honor Him. The other problem is what Jesus mentioned in Luke 12 in the parable of the rich fool. And what Jesus is mentioning now here in Luke 13. We are not promised tomorrow. And we should not put off repentance. Now is the time to turn to Jesus in faith. And, and to everyone here this morning, I, I want us to recognize that when thinking about the coming judgment, we must be careful not to do what those in Luke chapter 13 verse 1 did. Did you notice they depersonalized the implications of what Jesus was saying and asked about other people? And you notice how Jesus, in his language, turned it back to them. You, 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 Jesus said to them over and over again. Unless you repent, you will perish. Friend, I've got to ask you, have you repented? If you do not, you will perish. 
Jesus tells you that. And by that, Jesus does not mean that you will kind of pass out of existence. No, he means that you will eternally perish in hell. That place that he mentioned in Luke chapter 12, verse 5. But why? Well, the Bible teaches us that we have all been made in God's image. Made to to love and serve God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We've been made to fear, honor, and worship God. But instead of treasuring God above all things, we have treasured our own lives. Instead of submitting to God's gracious rule, we have tried to rule our own lives. This is what the Bible calls sin. Sin is any failure to conform to God's character and God's ways. Sin is nothing less than rebellion against God as we reject His rule and live under our own. And we have all sinned, just like our first parents, just like Adam and Eve. And the Bible tells us the wages of sin, the just payment that we have earned for our sin, that we've earned for working in sin, what we deserve to be paid is eternal death. And the truth is that we've all sinned. We've all been covetous. We've all treasured money above our maker. We've all been harsh with others. But the good news of the Bible in Luke 12 and 13 is is that in love, God gave His one and only Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus was fully God and fully man. He lived the life that we have not lived, the life of perfect obedience to God the Father. And yet Jesus died on the cross, bearing the sins and the punishment for all of those who would have returned from their sins and place their faith in Him. On the cross, Jesus was immersed or baptized in the wrath of God. And on the cross, Jesus underwent the hellish punishment that our sins deserve. And three days later, God raised Jesus from the dead, vindicating Him and proving to us all that His life, His death, and His resurrection on behalf of repenting sinners was acceptable in God's sight. And now, the God who has been patient with you, invites you to receive His most generous gift, His Son. And when we receive Jesus as a gift, we are given salvation from our sins and eternal life with God in the promised land of heaven. When we receive Jesus through repentance and faith, we are reconciled to God. We receive this gift by turning away from our sins, by turning to Jesus believing that Jesus lived for us and died for us and was raised for us. Dear friend, I want to invite you to become a disciple of Jesus, a follower of Jesus, to repent and be reconciled to God today through faith in Jesus. And if you want to know more about what it means to repent and be reconciled to God, I'd love to talk with you about that. You can find me at the door after the service. Talk with the friend or family member that you came here with this morning. There's nothing more important than you can think about and what it means to, be, to repent and to be reconciled to God through faith in Jesus Christ. We should conclude. In Luke chapter 12, uh, verses 1 through chapter 13, verse 9, we have learned that disciples fearlessly confess Jesus as their Lord because they fear God above all else. Disciples treasure God because we are treasured by God. Disciples are prepared and prepared for Jesus returned by watching and working for His glory. And disciples are reconciled to God through faith-filled repentance. One of the things that we must not lose sight of in all of Jesus' teaching is how He constantly grounds our hope not on ourselves, 
but on Himself. He will give us the courage and the words to speak. He will give us His kingdom. He will undergo a baptism for His people. He will work to prepare the soil of the hearts of His people so that in His kindness He might lead them to repentance. Disciples not only follow their Master each day, but they depend upon Him each day. All of our power and strength to follow Jesus comes from God Himself. Thomas Brooks was right when he wrote, quote, God hath in Himself all power to defend you, all wisdom to direct you, all mercy to pardon you, all grace to enrich you, all righteousness to clothe you, all goodness to supply you, and all happiness to crown you. Your Father, it is His good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this teaching from Jesus, even as it is so often hard for us to hear. Uh, we give you thanks for the, the encouragement that we can draw from the disciples of Jesus who fearlessly proclaimed Him because they feared You. Father, we, uh, we are challenged by this call to treasure You above all things, even above the treasure that this world holds out, holds out to us. Father, we ask that you would help us to watch, to be looking for and longing for Christ's return and cause us to be faithful as we work and labor until he does. Father, each day, give us the gift of repentance and faith. Help us to believe in the righteousness of Jesus Christ even as we endeavor to put off our sin and to turn away from it. Remind us that the Lord Jesus is our whole hope and it is in His name that we pray. Amen. Our final song is entitled, Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound we found in the insert in your bulletin. Let me encourage you to go ahead and pull out that insert. Yes, we are going to sing all seven verses of Amazing Grace. Um, and this morning, we had the privilege of being reminded that it is our, our Heavenly Father's good pleasure to give us the kingdom. Or as we'll sing in verse, third verse of this song, His grace will lead us home. Let's sing Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound. Please stand as we sing. Mm -hmm.